And you all don't use any pesticides or any sprays or anything like that? Yeah, and that's going back to the days when I started my own nursery. I was just starting with my trees. And, you know, you can't sell a tree that's only six inches tall. You have to wait. So there was a bunch of time period for two years where I was supplementing my money by growing organic vegetables. So I was a real believer in natural systems and not having to use man-made chemicals and especially dangerous ones in the form of pesticides. Just the word side means death. And so I was doing that, but when my nursery didn't make it because I just, I had two kids to take care of and, and I wasn't making enough money to do it. So when the job of propagator came up at Fort Collins Wholesale Nursery, I took it and I was trying to do it organically without pesticides, but there's too many complaints. Uh, Scott's growing a buggy plant. So my boss was telling me, oh, you have to put pesticides. You know, you can't sell things that have bugs on it. Then in the summertime when I needed workers, my kids were teenagers and I hired them and high school kids would come in, other people's children and co-workers' children would come and work. And I didn't want to expose anybody to that stuff. So I started really researching, what can I do so I don't have to spray these chemicals because the, the label would say, stay out for 24 hours, but then the systemic effect of this particular pesticide would continue to kill insects for 30 days, and it didn't make sense to me. So, you know, we're touching these plants, making cuttings or pruning them, and still has that pesticide in it enough where it still can kill for 30 days. I don't want to do that to my children, so I've got to find a better way. So I stopped, and whenever I ship stuff out, I would be really careful and blast them with high-pressure water, just mm. like put my thumb on the end of a hose and just... And that was enough because it was mostly people could see the aphids. Just sure. the simplest insect to get rid of is yeah. aphids. But there's a lot of things you didn't know. You can't see them. They're really small. And, and so when I stopped spraying, I looked in my greenhouses. All of a sudden, if I hadn't been in that greenhouse for, because there was 10 of them, if I hadn't been in there in three days, I'd be walking through cobwebs like I was in a haunted mansion. <laughs> sure. <laughs> because the spiders had moved in because there was food for them to eat. Nice pesticides. warm climate. <laughs> yeah, and the spiders get killed by the pesticides as well. And toads. We need spiders. <laughs> <laughs> toads and snakes. I've had people that applied for the job, and when they found out that, yeah, there's snakes everywhere, they'd say, oh, well, not for uh, me. <laughs> I'm not working here. <laughs> but if you are lived in Colorado enough time, you go outside, you, there's not that much insects out there. We don't have a lot of problems with damaging insect and that's because we have a lot of predators you know those are homeostasis there and so they started coming into the greenhouses because we have louvers and fans and they would sucked in and it was a nice warm place to live and it worked all of a sudden i didn't have to worry about them and then the things that i did have to worry about like with my biggest nemesis there's two of them the first one was called black vine weevil it's nocturnal, so you don't even see the adult. And they lay their eggs, and then it's a grub. And so it's in the soil. You don't even know it's there. And they eat all winter long roots. And so I'd be moving these plants and pulling them up, and their roots would be gone. They'd just fall over. <laughs> and so I did more research on that. 
and found that there's a nematode called Steinernemia crossii that you just time it so like when the black weevil larva lays their eggs is about July. So you put the nematodes on in August because the eggs have just hatched and that nematode would take care of them. And so now I still see a few pop up, but not like before. I mean, so much before there was thousands of plants to be died from now it's one or two. Well, really, you just put the natural system back in balance from when it was out of whack with too many bugs and not enough predators. That's right. You know, and just to be fair to people who work in a greenhouse where it's year-round propagation, which is harder to do a natural system when it's year-round where they have a greenhouse that's heated in the wintertime and you're running crop after crop after crop. Our greenhouses, because they're woody plants and woody plants sleep in the wintertime, so we don't even have the heaters until it gets 10 degrees. So the plants are completely dormant, the soil balls freeze, and so a lot of the insects that may be pest problems come spring have died in the wintertime. And so that system for me works very well. And it's not only that, there's some of the soil microbes are so important. So we actually put on the host-specific mycorrhizae. There is a company still in existence to this day still buy it. It's called Mycorrhizal Applications out of Grants Pass, Oregon. But I started buying from them back in early, earlier days when it was still run by this Oregon State mycologist, Dr. Michael Amaranthus. And, and he would send me mycorrhizal for, he'd say, give me a list of all the plants that you're growing, Scott. And so I'd send him the whole list and he'd send back, these use this, you know, the endomycorrhiza with the species glomus. And he'd have a cocktail mixture of mycorrhizae with seven different glomus species. And glomus is a microscopic, you can't see it with the naked eye, and it grows within the roots. And then for the ectomycorrhiza were the other plants like oaks and pines and spruce and firs and cottonwoods and birches, and those all have mycorrhizae that you can see with the naked eye, and they form these white mycelial strands that venture out into the soil and they work as surrogate roots. They'll bring back water and nutrients that they mine because these mycorrhizae, mycelial strands, there's 25 strands of mycelium that's the diameter of a human hair. So they can go so far into the pore spaces of the smallest pieces of clay, whereas a clunky root hair, even though it's small, can't go into the, the clay particles, you know, little hidden pore spaces. And they bring back all these nutrients, you know, the cations that are attached in to the anions of the clay particles or the organic matter and bring it back and they share it in exchange for the process for sugars produced by the process of photosynthesis. And not only do they have this symbiotic relationship that way, which makes the both of these organisms work, but, but it sequesters carbon into the soil at the same time so that we know from mycorrhizal associations that 25% of the ground in which we walk is sequestered carbon produced by mycorrhizae. So imagine how much worse climate change with the CO2 being released into the atmosphere would be without these mycorrhizal associations that few even have heard about. Unless you work in the field or are interested in just scientific studies. Which few are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
And I feel like in a nursery setting and like an agricultural setting, we're trying to mimic these natural systems, but oftentimes we separate them from the things that make it necessary for them to grow. Like you were saying that mycorrhizal association prohibited some of your plants from taking off and growing as much as they would. As soon as you reconnected that system, you saw improvement in your crop growth, right? Oh, yeah. That's, you know, Marvel comic books have their genesis stories, <laughs> the mycorrhizal genesis story. And <laughs> nice. it, was, it was happened early on in my propagation career at the nursery. Gary Epstein, my owner, I mentioned previously, he's now retired. He's no longer the owner, but he's still a good friend of mine, one of my greatest mentors. He hired me just so I could grow native plants. And he wanted one particular one that he said put high on the list was called the big tooth maple. And one time they thought it was a sugar maple, subspecies of the sugar maple, because it's got red fall color, but it grows only in the Rockies. It grows in the Tetons and in Idaho and the Wasatch Mountains of Utah. Oh, I didn't realize there were native maples out here. Yeah. Oh, and this is the best one. <laughs> it's the best one and grows in the Disappointment River Valley in southwestern Colorado and in the north slopes of Mesa Verde National Park into New Mexico and Texas, even down into Chihuahua, Mexico. So just in the Rockies. And it's one of the most drought-tolerant maples of all, but it looks like a sugar maple. Mm. To see ones, you wanted one. Especially, you know, like the Wasatch Front in Salt Lake City, if you're ever in Salt Lake in the fall, you look into the mountainside to the east of Salt Lake and the whole half the mountain's red. It's just like you're in Vermont, you know, leaf peeping. <laughs> but whenever time we tried to grow them, they'd grow three inches the first year and three inches more the second year. And by the time it was 15 inches tall, it was, you know, four or five years old. It was just grew too slow. And as you mentioned, the Mycorrhizal Association, so I thought, hmm, I got to get hold of that. So I was asked to give a talk on native plants at Utah State in Logan, Utah. And the professor, Dr. Kelgren, who was my host, took me and my wife on this hike into the Wellsville Mountains, which is west of Logan. And we went up into this grove of big tooth maples that were old growth. They're, I don't know how old they were, but they were impressive trees. And earthworms hadn't even gotten up there. It was high up in the mountains. And so earthworms, you know, they're really good at eating all the leaf as they fall. And so once the earthworms are there, after one year of leaf litter, they eat them all. Yeah. But not there. It was thick because the earthworms weren't there yet. And so we were walking. It's like walking on a mattress. And so I reached down and I knew I was going to collect and that's what I wanted. I was there just to get the mycorrhizae. So I dug down deep as I could and it was at least like 18 inches of leaf litter until I found humic layers where it had broken down just from other microbes. And I knew that because the maples are use the glomus, which is an endomycorrhizal species, and it grows within its endo, it grows within the roots. So I needed to get some roots. So I found where the roots began and I made sure I got some roots with it. Put them back. I got two gallons of black bags full of that nice black mycorrhizae, I hope. And brought it home, and I had cherry-picked one from first ones I was growing. It was really nice, brilliant red fall color. I planted it in my yard. It was only like 18 inches tall. And I dumped the two sacks of mycorrhizae around the trunk and then used rocks from my rock garden to hold it down so that the winds wouldn't blow it away through in the wintertime. The next year, my 18-inch tall 
big tooth maple grew to be seven feet tall. <laughs> it's just so insane. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's just one story of how much growth I get on these plants. And so that's when I found the company I mentioned, Mycorrhizal Applications, and Dr. Amaranth set me right. And so from the big tooth maples with the glomus species with seven different species of glomus, I was getting 18 inches on certain individuals in one year, and then 9 to 12 inches was an average. And so now we do hundreds and thousands of big tooth maples, and people from all over the Rockies will buy anything that we have access. When you are propagating natives, is there any time where you use native soil, or eventually do you add in some sort of clay, or do any plants need that? You know, we don't do that, but I know that there are some growers that do that, but it's usually no more than a 10% mix of native soil. And the reason why I don't do this because I'm always fearful of bringing in a pathogenic microbe of some sort that could now be in my greenhouses forever. But because it works with the mixture that I use in my main mixes, one of them, they're very simple. The first one is just my seedling mix, and it's one part peat to one part perlite. So it's like one bag, you know, three cubic foot bag of perlite, three cubic bag of peat. And I put in two cups of mycorrhizic granules of the glomus. And I put in two cups of lime. And that's pretty much because peat is so acidic. And we're growing native plants of Colorado and we have peaches of seven and eight. So we're trying to, you know, bring the high acidic down more or up. And we add micronutrients, it's called Micromax, a quarter cup to that, and then uh, a wetting agent because peat's often hydrophobic. Yeah, Yeah, I just learned that. Yeah, and so it it makes it so it wet up down a lot easier. We just mix it up, and just by adding the mycorrhizal component, which is the most important part of it, so that gives it so that. Not only does mycorrhizae then attach to the roots and act as surrogal roots, but they also act as sort of like an innkeeper. Mm. Like, there's no room in the inn, you (laughs) pythium, rhizoctonium, (laughs) (laughs) and all the the damping off fungus that might gain a foothold. And so it's worked really well. And like tall western sage, which is used to be really hard for us to grow because it grows in the deserts of, you know, the big basin, you know, the Wyoming and Nevada and you know the Colorado has their own population, but they can grow really tough sites, but they're mineral soils with low organic matter. Here we're trying to grow them in fifty percent organic right. matter. <laughs> you know, and once we started using the mycorrhizae on there, we don't have loss really. A small amount of loss. Where before it was like fifty percent loss. So it's like it's the missing it's like the story you said of when you met your wife. It's like a perfect match. <laughs> yeah, it was such match a perfect me. match, yeah. Speaking of plants, do you have a favorite plant? You know, I do have my favorite plant, and I was just asked that question about a year ago, and I couldn't think of it. <laughs> it's a hard and question. <laughs> it, and so I thought about it, and I said, of course, this is it. It also has a wonderful story. Up the road from Fort Collins in Cheyenne, Wyoming, is an old, abandoned USD horticulture station. And it's been abandoned since 1974, so it's almost 50 years of being left on its own devices. An experiment station near Cheyenne, Wyoming, was authorized March 19, 1928. 
Congress directed the U.S. Department of Agriculture to establish the station to experiment with and propagate flowers, vegetables, and shade, fruit, and ornamental trees, which were adapted to the conditions and the needs of the semi-arid or dry land regions of the U.S. Water rights were leased from the city of Cheyenne for 199 years at $1 per year. The first plantings of trees, shrubs, fruits, and vegetables were made in 1930, and building construction was completed in 1931. The High Plains Arboretum, as it's known now, consists of 62 acres of historical trees and shrubs, many of which were brought to this country by plant hunters employed by the USDA. A Civilian Conservation Corps camp of 200 men opened up on the station in 1935. In seven years, the CCC built roads, over two miles of concrete-lined irrigation ditches, and a water and septic system, and planted thousands of trees and shrubs. This camp reputedly had the worst food in the country. Over 1,300 varieties of tree fruits, apples, pears, plums, cherries, etc., and 300 varieties of small fruits, raspberries, strawberries, currants, and gooseberries, were tested for hardiness to drought and cold. To find a winter-hardy strawberry for the High Plains, 42,000 native strawberries were collected from Montana to New Mexico. This work led to the release of several superior varieties, including Radiance, Ogallala, and Fort Laramie. In 1936, a forage crop research began at the station. Over 200 species and varieties of grass were established to evaluate their yield potential, drought, and cold tolerance, and nutritive value. The first horticultural publication from the station was issued this year, followed by the first publication on grass research in 1940. Is there anything like still growing there from what they had originally planted then? There is. Oh, wow. And the Cheyenne Station is a national treasure. It started in 1929, and because the USDA was sending plant explorers around the globe to bring back plants that could be useful to the people of our country, and back in the day, it was mostly things like food you know, apples and, you know, things that would keep people alive or fodder for our livestock. But these were plantsmen that they sent out, you know, botanists, and they were interested in all kinds of plants. So they didn't just bring back peaches and plums and apples and alfalfa strains from Siberia. They brought back ornamental plants when they found them. And so the first one was in like the 1890s. And by 1929, all the germplasm repositories in America were filled up, and they needed to do more, and it was the beginning of the Great Depression, so Franklin Roosevelt put one in Cheyenne, put another one in Mandan, North Dakota, and one in Woodward, Oklahoma, so they had three of them alone in the Great Plains, and the one in Cheyenne was called the Central Great Plains Horticulture Station, and they started filling them up with plants, and then eventually... They lost their funding. Congress decided, nope, that's too much money by 1974. And so they closed the horticulture station, but renamed the station to do grasslands research. But in the meantime, they had like 60 acres of trees collected from around the world. And they had tested 5,000 fruit trees. I mean, it was just nuts how beautiful this place was. But with the passage of time and only 15 inches of rain every year, and wind and deer and antelope getting in there, nobody taking care of them except for one guy, one guy, Larry Griffith. I hope he's listening. Larry, I'm going to have to tell you to come listen to the Southern Green podcast because <laughs> you're a hero. He worked for the Grasslands Station, and 
he would take a tractor with a disc on it and go between the rows and get rid of the grass and the weeds that were growing up between the rows so that when it did rain, the moisture went to the trees and shrubs that were abandoned and not to the grass and not to the weeds because they're so much more effective at using up because of the root systems are on the surface. So use it up real quick. So he kept most of those trees alive. You know, even with that heroic measure, it wasn't enough. So 70% of the plants died. The ones that survived, you think an abandoned research station isn't going to teach you anything? <laughs> Just by abandoning it, you learn something like, what really can take droughty conditions? What can survive here on its own devices? What can take deer eating its branches and antelopes doing the same and hailing come down and wind and cold 6,000 foot elevation is a tough place. So my favorite tree was there. And it's a Chinese crab apple called Hung Hai Tong. I had just graduated from CSU in 90, 1994. And I was introduced to that station and saw these trees and I, and I fell in love with the place. And I was doing term papers for myself. <laughs> I would go into the station records and find where these things came from. Many of them had plant introduction numbers from the USDA, so I could go into interlibrary loan at CSU Library and request the USDA records. Most of them had at least a paragraph where they came from, and they would mention who the explorer was, and so I was able to find out, like, this Hungai Tung crab apple was collected in the famous Dorset Morse expedition. And I only know that it's famous because this Harvard University professor said, what, they have plants from the famous Dorset Morse expedition at Cheyenne? And so that's when I started researching Dorset Morse even more. We're going to interrupt Scott for just a second here to give you a brief background. The Chinese Revolution, which took place from the 1920s to 1949, was a period of intense political, social, and economic change in China that began with the formation of the Communist Party of China and the Nationalist Party which eventually led to the Northern Expedition, a military campaign to unify China under the Nationalist Party, in which both parties sought to eliminate the extant warlords in the country. However, the alliance between the Nationalists and the Communists soon fell apart when the Nationalists turned on the Communists and killed or rid them from the party, leading to a civil war that lasted for over a decade. The Communist Party, led by Mao Zedong, emerged victorious in 1949, establishing the People's Republic of China, revolution had far-reaching consequences, including land reforms, social changes, and a new approach to economic development as China moved towards socialism. The Dorset Morse Oriental Agricultural Exploration Expedition was undertaken by P.H. Dorset and W.J. Morse from 1929 to 1931. As Scott will tell you, they traveled across East Asia, mainly concerning themselves with the propagation, harvest, and processing of soybeans. They ended up bringing back 4,451 accessions of soybeans, nearly half of the 9,000 total accessions they retrieved. However, according to the paper written in 1984, only 945 of those original soybean accessions survived at the time it was published. Unfortunately, we couldn't find anything about the number of accessions that survived today. Apparently, the USDA did not share the passion for soybeans that Dorset and Morse did. Apart from finding numerous other plants of interest to the USDA, 
They didn't only bring back soybeans. The Dorset Morris expedition is responsible for the use of some soybeans in agriculture today. Around the time of the expedition, soybeans were gaining popularity in the States, which meant that the instances of diseases and pests were also rising in soybeans. Some of the accessions that Dorset and Morris brought back had natural resistances, which were eventually crossbred with soybeans at the time, some of which are still on the world market today. Now, I can't imagine going on an expedition like this. I'm sure it's much more restrictive today as we are way more wary of invasive species and pathogens that might come along for the journey. We'll also provide some links in the show notes that feature some pictures of their expedition, though the full collection is said to contain over 900 photographs. And the story goes is that the Chinese revolution was happening in China in 1927, and Chiang Kai-shek, who is the president of nationalist China, was chasing around Mao Tse-sung around and his communist rebels around. And here's Dorset and Morse marching through China, riding on donkeys. There's pictures of them riding oh on donkeys, God. finding plants to bring back to America. And they would seek refuge in Buddhist temples. And the story is that the Hongai Tung was from the Fa Huishu Buddhist Temple in Jilin, which is north of Beijing in northeastern China, like 40 below zero cold. It's a really cold part of China. And the rich Buddhist monks, when they died, they would use family money and they'd build a stone stupa, you know, to honor where their bodies. And the poor monks, they planted a tree over them. There's a living stupa. The Hung Hai Tung was a living stupa. And they brought it back and they said, where should we plant this Hung Hai Tung? And they said, well, it matches up to the Cheyenne climate. So they sent it to Cheyenne and now it's 90 years old. It has a trunk on it about oh, almost three feet. It has flowers two and a half inches in diameter double, triple the size of a normal white crab apple tree, and the fruit's about an inch long. It's edible, kind of soury, sweet, but it's just got everything going for it. It's got this story. Wow. And I want to take a field trip to Cheyenne now. You have to go there. And, and Larry Griffith is still alive. I've went to the added effort of finding the stories behind the explorers and where they were found and all their characteristics. And are these written down? I've written some articles for magazines for them, Very yes. Cool. And that's another one that they've told me I should write a more in-depth book about it. But the rest of the story is this, is that Colorado has the most famous horticulturist in the state. His name is Panayoti Kaladiz, and he's works at the Denver Botanic Garden. And he doesn't have a degree in horticulture. He has a degree in Chinese. Mm. <laughs> and then he told me that... After I got my degree, I always thought, oh, you know, I don't know why I got into Chinese because there's a billion people on earth who speak better Chinese than I do. <laughs> so he switched to plants and he's a perfect match for that. So I took him to the Cheyenne station and showed him the trees and he goes, Fa Shu, that means that was the temple of transformational thoughts. And for the first time in my life, you know, we've all heard about transformational thoughts and didn't speak much about it, but there I was standing there under the tree that was the stupa of an unknown passed away monk from the 1920s or before. And I had transformational thoughts and it transformed me. My father had broke his neck. He lived for 23 years. And I remember at that point, I had always gone to visit my dad from time to time, but he lived here in Fort Collins. 
and everything. I need to go visit my dad more often. And it transformed my life mm. and it helped my father even more. And so whenever I think about that tree, I think about that. And so I don't know what took me so long to think what my favorite tree is, but the Hongai Tang certainly is mine. Excellent story. I love it. <laughs> yeah. And it's kind of like the memories of these stories that you're keeping going with these plants. You're also now doing that with your father and speaking about him and it, it'll carry on so forth for our listeners and anyone who takes the information that they learn on this podcast and what they will do with it. So we're creating a, a spider web of information that's literally my favorite part about doing what we do. It's almost like an oral history, you know, where it's like passed down through the generations like that. But in this more concrete way, you know, something that you can see this tree and Essentially, it sounds like it was like a tombstone almost for somebody, you know. There's a little bit more that you should mention that because after that, Mao won and Chiang Kai-shek left and took all the treasures of China and went to Taiwan. In 1969, Mao, in his cultural revolution, sent his troops to destroy the Buddhist temples. So they went up to the Fahua Shu and raised it. But even the Chinese troops who did that still had ancestors veneration. So then they went to the stone stupas in the forests. They left them because mm. it was really bad to do that to sure. your, your ancestors. So now that forest is called the pagoda forest. And there's photographs of you can see it online. So wherever the Hongai tongue was and then the, the rich monks stupas are still there. Something in researching this really struck a chord with me. When I searched for pagoda forests, most of the results were about the brick pagodas and how they're huge tourist attractions and how the monks, quote unquote, earned different sizes and made them into various conical shapes out of bricks or stones. I couldn't find much on the specific site Scott mentioned, but I went down plenty of rabbit holes. Scott mentioned standing under the Hung Hai Tung tree and having a moment of transformative thought. A concept I came across called Parikrama caught my eye. Common in religions like Jainism, Buddhism, Hinduism, and Sikhism, it involves circumambulating a holy object like a stupa or a pagoda in prayer or after paying homage to a deity. Now, I'm not much of a religious person myself, but I do practice meditation, and I was given the opportunity to strengthen that practice in the place I currently live without really having planned it. It's just kind of fell into my lap. In the front of the house, there's a moderately sized blue spruce that I kind of adopted. I ripped out a lot of the landscape fabric that was around it and landscape theory between that and the maple and the grapes with a couple of paths connecting them to the existing flagstone path. And I do frequently use these paths to cross to pacing circles around the trees and the yard. And I've had a few moments of transformational thought walking under and being with these trees. And most of it isn't profound per se, but more like providing guidance and just wanted to share that. On the subject of all this history, uh, could we talk a little bit about the Russian Revolution and alfalfa and the Fontaine ornamental cherry? That was the one. <laughs> yeah. So back in the day when I was, you know, just sponging up all the information and I quickly realized, I said, oh my God, there's plants here from four revolutions, you know, the American Revolution, the French Revolution. We touched on the Chinese Revolution and the Russian Revolution and so I wrote an article for it in Colorado Guardian magazine, one from the American Revolution, that was the oldest one, because they had 5,000 different types of fruit trees which were evaluated at the Cheyenne Station, and then 
1963, they finished their evaluations. And so they wrote a paper, made their recommendations, and published their findings. And so their work was done. So they bulldozed 5,000 fruit trees, except for 50 of them, where Gene Howard, who was the last director of the Cheyenne Station, had said, wait, before you bulldoze them, what if we've just made our recommendations? And some of them, you know, they came from farmers from Minnesota. You know, there's no nurseries have them. If people want them, they're going to have to get them for us. So they put ribbons on 50 trees and then all the rest are bulldozed. So right now, from 63 to now, so that's almost 60 years, about 10 trees still survive. And one of them was called the Sweet Bough. And when I researched the Sweet Bough apple, it was planted at Monticello with Thomas Jefferson's estate in Virginia. And so that was the connection to the American Revolution. Then the French Revolution happened just after the American Revolution. And the tree at the Cheyenne Station was called the Desfontaine Cherry. I researched who's Desfontaine, and his name was Rene Desfontaine, and he was the president of the French Academies of Science. It's like the American Academy of Science, but, you know, for France, 250 years ago. And Louis XVI was the king of France. He was the last king of France before the revolution happened. And when the king wants somebody, he wants the best. So he took the botanist, Rene Desfontaine, to be his gardener at Versailles. And so all of a sudden now this renowned scientist is connected with the king and off with his head with a guillotine type of thing. So he had to go into hiding, and then he did survive. And sometime before he died in 1809 is when he developed the Desfontaine cherry, and it was sent to America from Europe and was at the Cheyenne Station. But when I arrived and saw it in the 90s, it was a stump. It was dead. But CSU had come to the rescue and propagated it. And it's today at the Plant Environmental Research Center Arboretum to the west of the football stadium. And it's a big, big cherry tree. The cherries are really bitter, so it's more of an ornamental, but it's a wonderful cherry. It's a cloud of white flowers in the spring and tough as nails, at least for growing here. Wow, it's amazing. Yeah, very yeah. cool. You're like not only a plant propagator extraordinaire, you're a plant historian. This is amazing. <laughs> yeah, that's one of my favorite things is history. Then the very last one was the Russian Revolution. And there's so many plants that were collected that are now at the Cheyenne Station because of one man, his name was Dr. Nels Hansen, and he was a professor at South Dakota State University. He was the very first USD explorer in the 1890s, so plant introduction number one was Dr. Hansen's. He was chosen to be the first plant explorer because he was fluent in five languages. And so I have a map that the USD put together of his seven journeys, almost all of them through Russia. And so you'd think that he would take various journeys throughout various parts of Russia, but no, the only way to get from, like, say, Vladivostok on the Pacific Ocean to Western is the Trans-Siberian Railroad. So you can see all of his trips through Siberia was just along the Trans-Siberian Railroad, except for a few times he would get out and he would go on a sleigh. And through the 700-mile journey on a sleigh, being pulled by horses, and then he'd have to wait for the snow to melt, 
And he would be gone sometimes for two years on these explorations. And it was there that he found Medicago fulcata, which is the yellow alfalfa. And there's a photograph of him buying two giant haystacks of this with being loaded onto camels. And so they'd take him back to wherever he was staying and he'd pick the seed out of it. And he brought that back and he was able to increase the amount of places where alfalfa, this nutritional cattle fodder, could be grown well into the, the Dakotas, into the prairie provinces of Canada for that. So a very important study. But he talks about in his book about being caught in between the Cossacks who were the loyalists to Nicholas and Alexander, the Tsars of Russia, and the Bolsheviks of the Russian Revolution having to duck and then run into a building just to prevent being shot in the middle, just being caught in the crossfire. So, but he went to Russia seven times, but twice during the Russian Revolution. And for those of us who need a refresher on the 1917 Russian Revolution, you can basically divide it into two parts, the February Revolution and the October Revolution. The February Revolution, which vanquished Tsar Nicholas II, arose spontaneously from a series of increasingly violent demonstrations and riots on the streets of Petrograd, which is modern-day St. Petersburg, while the Tsar was away from the capital visiting troops on the World War I front. Though the February Revolution was a popular movement, it didn't necessarily reflect the wishes of the majority of Russians, as the event was primarily confined to the city of Petrograd. However, most of those who came to power following the February Revolution the Provisional Government, and the Petrograd Soviets, which were an influential local council representing workers and soldiers, desired partially democratic governance. The October Revolution, or the Bolshevik Revolution, overthrew the temporary Provisional Government and established the Soviet Union. The October Revolution, on the other hand, was a much more planned event orchestrated by a small group of people. The Bolsheviks who led this coup planned it in just six months. When they began serious efforts in April 1917, they were widely regarded as an extremist group with little popular support. By October, the Bolsheviks' popular base had grown significantly. While still a minority in the country as a whole, they had gained a majority of support in Petrograd and other urban centers. After October, the Bolsheviks realized they couldn't keep power in an election-based system unless they shared power with the other parties and compromised their principles. As a result, in January 1918, they formally abandoned the democratic process and declared themselves leaders of the first communist country. The land was declared social property, and the farmers were given a free hand to occupy the lands of the feudatories. So there's so many plans from Dr. Hansen at the station, but there's two in particular that I really like, and they don't have much to do with Russia, but he would take various ways, and one way started out in China, and then went in and then went through Mongolia into the Trans-Siberian Railroad, but he found the northern range of the apricot. And he was always in the search for it because the apricot was, the scientific name for the apricot is Prunus armeniaca, which means of Armenia. So it's first found in Western Asia, north of Iran, in Armenia, or just next to Turkey. And so that's more of a southerly, it's more something that would grow in California or Arizona place like that. But the Manchurian strain of the same species was 50 below zero. He wanted that for the northern plains in South Dakota, where he was a professor. 
and you'd think that he was trapsing through the mountains looking for the northern apricots. Well, no, he knew where to look, and it was the farmer's markets. So he'd go from one farmer's market to the next and trying to see what they had. And I always kind of imagine in a romantic kind of a sense of like he's waiting in line, seeing all the apricots, and then there's Chinese people's behind him waiting in turn for their apricots and he buys all of them <laughs> give me uh, 30,000 tickets that'll be nine hundred and fifty thousand dollars, please look the thing about that is i only got ten dollars on me can i pay you the rest later sure oh. yeah so he brought him back to america and grew him out and from 1927 to 1936 he was able to name 12 varieties of all the apricot pits that he brought back to America. And then he sent four of each to the Cheyenne Station, and now only three of them survive. Two of a variety called Hulan and one called Sino. There are beautiful trees there, but it's, the apricot still is not a really good one for Cheyenne or for the northern front ranges because it blooms too early and usually gets frosted out, but it's a beautiful tree in its own right. Maybe the blossoms will freeze, but you still doesn't kill the trees because 50 below zero hardy. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Do you say that the alfalfa that he collected there was being used here for growth? Because I know that's like an important crop for cover crops and fixing nitrogen. Yeah, the one that he found was the yellow alfalfa, which has a yellow flower. The one that grows around here, I don't know the scientific name of it, but it's a blue-flowered one, still an alfalfa, but a different species. Mm. So we're far enough south that we can still grow the more traditional alfalfa, oh, where okay. I think the yellow-flowering one is a much bigger, coarser plant. Do you know how they stack up in terms of performance? You know, if the yellow-flowered one was better, we'd probably be growing now. So I would imagine it's probably the blue flower one is better. At least it's more adapted to our climate here. Right. Not yeah. that it's better, but more adapted. Do you have a favorite part of your job? Well, I have a couple of favorite ones. My first favorite one is when I get to say, hey, I'm going up to Trap Park to get uh, twinberry honeysuckle <laughs> seeds. And then I go up there and just get to traps around in the woods. You know, Trap Park is a great place. You just go up the top of the pooter, take a left on Long Draw Road, go about four miles and then there's a pull-off where the parking is and you go up into this place called Trap Park and, and I saw moose on three occasions just on a, a six-mile loop. You know, it's a wow. loop hike, but it's just to see him three places at the same time and it's got all this history of Joshua Chambers from Chambers Lake. Mm -hmm. He was an early trapper in La Rami. He was a true French fur trapper in the Laramie River. It was named after him in Laramie, Wyoming. Fort Laramie was named after him, and his cabin was up near Chambers Lake, one of their favorite places to trap, and that whole valley is filled with beaver dams and wow. moose. And you know, I was going to ask you, where do you go looking for the thimbleberries? Because the only place I've seen them is on the western slope, usually in and amongst the aspen groves. My preferred place to go is up the Risk Canyon, turn on the Stowe Prairie Road south toward Masonville, then turn on the road that goes up to the Colorado Mountain campus. It used to be called Pingree Park until recently when they found out that Pingree was 
a bastard. Yeah, he was. <laughs> yeah. He doesn't deserve the name of uh, such a beautiful place. The Sand Creek Massacre occurred on November 29, 1864 in southeastern Colorado. A group of about 700 U.S. soldiers led by Colonel John Shivington attacked a peaceful encampment of Cheyenne and Arapahoe people. The soldiers killed approximately 230 Native Americans, mostly women, children, and elderly. The Sand Creek Massacre is considered one of the most brutal and shameful events in U.S. history. George Pingree was an Army scout at the time and is said to have boasted to the end of his days about his involvement, during which he scalped 13 Native Americans. Later, it's said he traded the scalps for two years' worth of barbering. Fucking shameful. The horrific actions behind those of for whom some of our natural wonders and public spaces are named have led many to call for change, and we currently have someone championing this cause on a federal level. Secretary of the Interior Deb Holland, who is also a member of the Laguna Pueblo tribe, is taking steps to remove derogatory place names from federal lands. These names, which include racial slurs and offensive terms, have long been a source of pain and trauma for indigenous communities. Secretary Holland's action aims to promote a more inclusive and respectful approach to land management, while also honoring the history and culture of indigenous peoples. The process will involve consulting with tribal leaders and local communities to identify offensive names and suggest alternative ones. This effort is an important step toward healing the wounds of the past and building a more just and equitable future. But the road that goes over Panic Pass, you only have to go up about two miles and you start seeing them on their side of the road. So just right off the side of the road there. Not only that, that road is filled with hazelnuts, Mm. our native hazelnuts. A lot of people don't know that we have lots of native no hazelnuts <laughs> in there. It's called the beak hazelnuts. It's a coralless cornuda. And they're shrubs, and they're about 10 feet tall by 10 feet wide, older specimens, and they're all along riparian ways there. I see some plant hunting in my future. We don't take very many of them because the bears rely on those because there aren't right. oaks in northern Colorado. They don't live here, so they live on things like the hazelnuts. Mm. And so we usually, when we grow them, we'll, we'll take a hundred of them and leave a million of them behind. Right. Right. Is there a rule of thumb with, you know, wild collecting or wild harvesting? Well, you know, when it comes to plant propagators, there's not very many of us. And so we don't take very much, but it's mostly the people that would go up to collect them to have a winter's worth of hazelnuts, sure. which were, could cause the most damage to the bear population. Get off, bears. We were here first. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so the rule of thumb is to never take it all. Yes. And, you know, I think like that's important. W- yeah. With oaks, for instance, there's so many. A lot of the gamble oaks are, you know, 20 feet tall, and a tall guy like me can only reach up to eight feet. And so there's still 12 feet of acorns above that I'll never even be able to reach. And even though I'm growing 3,000 of them, I'm only visiting 20 trees. And there's millions of trees. If you were to give advice for someone who'd be interested in having a job title like yours, what would you tell them? Is to get a job in a nursery and to choose, even if the nursery that you started out with doesn't have a plant propagation division, because a lot of nurseries just buy their plants in from the big nurseries in Oregon or Minnesota. Those are the two major states that have big nursery operations that sell plants bare root back into other parts of the country. So work there, and then once you get to some experience, then just by working in the nursery, you'll know the places that have plant propagation divisions and then get a job there. 
you know, now it's been 25 years, and every CSU student that came by and wanted a job, I gave them a job. But there's less than 10. Wow. So go get experience and then keep learning. Yeah, and oftentimes you're just in the right place at the right time. And just getting your foot in the door is what what makes the difference between success and failure. Like in my situation, I wanted to stay in my hometown. And there wasn't very many places to go. There was Bath and Fossil Creek and Fort Collins Nursery. And I didn't know the difference between two. I just happened to get one a summer job at Fort Collins Nursery. And they liked me. And then they asked me if I would do an internship. I did an internship. And then they offered me the job while I was still, I hadn't graduated from college, but I wanted to have my own business. Mm. So I turned them down. And like I said, for two years, I tried to have my edible plant nursery. And then they tried again. They said, hey, we got a propagating <laughs> job coming up. You, you want it? And I said, yeah, I'll take it. Because <laughs> that's the job that everybody wants. Mm-hmm. And it was hard at first because, you know, I had to really make up my own recipes. But just by thinking it through and using, seeing what happens in nature, it really worked. And we have lots of jobs in the summertime. So it's, it's a good job for CSU students. It's a good job for high school kids that just because I'm busy propagating in the summer. But I start in the spring. So a lot of, you know, people can't, you know, take school time off. I kind of get by with whoever I can get, but then I really get going with my softwood cuttings. And that's when I fill up about four greenhouses with softwood in the summertime. And then so I really get going with people. And you can have that experience, even if it's just a summer job. If you want to go to Oregon, where there's 2,000 nurseries that have propagation divisions, probably setting yourself up pretty well getting a job. Anybody that's got propagation experience is great. Plus, you know, what you're doing is you are making oxygen-producing, CO2-sequestering, <laughs> food-producing, shade-providing. You're being providing. Johnny Appleseed. Yeah. You're, you're just, you're making the coolest organism on Earth. You know, it's one of the coolest earthlings we have, our trees. Agreed. Well, thank you so much for coming and talking to us. I learned so much, not only about plants, but about world global history. Yeah, and I really appreciate the, I think one of the biggest things I took away was that you are incorporating all these other natural systems back into even something like, you know, plant propagation in a greenhouse setting, which generally we think of like being heavily amended and, you know, using fertilizers and whatnot, but you're using totally natural methods, which I love. I'm so happy to hear that. Yes, we really appreciate your time and thank you again. Thank you, Scott. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. This has been fun. Awesome. Wee! Wee! <laughs>